This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 lunar landing. So why is it that in spite of all of the acceptance, unanimous acceptance, from the scientific and the historical communities, so many people still question the validity of the Apollo lunar program? What is it about the conspiratorial method of thinking and presenting information that's so seductive? And why is this posing a real threat to our democratic way of life in a 21st century landscape that's increasingly dominated by the internet and by social media? Hello everyone. This is essentially episode two of a series I never intended to do on whether the moon landings were hoaxed or not. More specifically, my interest is in why we are unable to answer this seemingly straightforward question to everyone's satisfaction. It might be fair enough to ignore a lunatic fringe, but with estimates that over a quarter of even the United States population harbouring doubts about the Apollo missions, what we have is a serious societal divide, one which I suspect will only grow with time. In the last episode, I critiqued David Chandler and Don Davis's unambiguously titled article, We Went to the Moon. My critique wasn't directed at the technical aspects of the article, but rather at the strategic approach. David and Don attempted to land three good knockout punches of arguments, demonstrating man's lunar odyssey beyond all doubt. They wish to firmly root their case in indisputably solid scientific fact. I don't think this approach will be effective at winning people over, because it fails to recognise that what appears to people as solid scientific fact depends on the perspective they occupy. The three pieces of evidence David and Don present are also used by the Moon hoax community to make their case. Occupying different perspectives, people talk past each other. To give an example, David Chandler is a prominent advocate of the position that the World Trade Center buildings 1, 2 and 7 were all brought down by controlled demolition. I've interviewed him about this, and at one point I asked about the psychological difficulty of believing such a thing. David's answer was that Newton trumps Freud. Physics trumps psychology. It doesn't matter if something is difficult to believe. If science says it's so, then that's that. On the one hand, there is an undeniable truth to this position. To reduce it to something really simple, objects of different masses fall at the same rate, irrespective of our psychological expectations. True fact. On the other hand, I contend it is insufficient. Most people don't have physics degrees. They may find the government's account of how the buildings fell down equally compelling. The notion of a vast conspiracy involving some sort of special forces operatives covertly planting bombs in the tallest buildings in the United States, it all seems ludicrous. The real kicker is that even though architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth collected an impressive 3,000 plus professional signatures, that's a drop in the ocean compared to those professionals who didn't sign on. When the overwhelming majority of scientists look at Building 7 free-falling down, they see a fire-induced collapse. Freud just kicked the crap out of Newton. It might be objected that a majority of scientists haven't even seen Building 7's demise, but that they don't consider it necessary to even look, I think goes to making my point. When I interviewed David, I was keen to ask him about his background, 
wondering if there was anything in it that allowed him to see 9-11 as he does. He'd worked with Central American refugees from Ronald Reagan's war in the 1980s, so that, perhaps along with other experiences, had left him in no doubt that America was an empire, its leadership morally capable of murder on a massive scale. I don't doubt David might dispute this is why he saw the collapse of the towers as controlled demolitions. He may assert it was all about the physics. Maybe that's the case, but the vast majority of physicists did not draw the same conclusion. An example of this related to the moon landings comes from the opening clip. It was the voice of Anu Ojar, one of the directors of the UK National Space Centre. Mr Ojar was giving a presentation, not on whether men went to the moon, but rather on why people don't believe that they did. Anu Ojar attributes this to a seductive conspiratorial method of thinking, which he asserts poses a real threat to our democratic way of life. He actually cites 9-11 conspiracies as an example of this. Now, what about 9-11? This is a single geopolitical event that's changed the global landscape since 2001. These are three of the arguments that are put forward by conspiracy theorists to say this was an inside job or the narrative is not true. All of these are absolutely true. But does it mean that the conspiracy argument is necessarily the only explanation? Um, certainly, the World Trade Centers, when it was designed, was designed to withstand the strike of a, of a small aircraft, a Boeing 707, coming in to land at one of the airports in New York. Nobody thought a plane would fly at full speed. So they designed it, if you look at the kinetic energy equation, they designed it for a 140-ton object, 160 miles an hour. When you look at the actual aircraft that flew at full throttle into both of those towers, the masses were nearly 50% more. The velocities were three times higher. They had more than 10 times the kinetic energy. So the, 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 the conspiracy theorist is misrepresenting the parameters on which their argument goes forward. Um, and what I've got here are what we call stress-strain curves for steel. Now, this isn't a physics lesson, but what these curves show is that you don't need to get steel to its melting point for it to catastrophically weaken in structure. That's what those stress-strain curves, straight out of A-level physics, actually show you. And when you look at the structure of the World Trade Center on the right-hand side, that steelwork was holding up nearly a million tons of material. Now, anyone who knows a controlled demolition knows that you take the weak point out and you let gravity do the rest. As soon as you have a weakened in structure, the material goes into free fall, which is why it looked like a controlled demolition. So again, that misrepresentation of evidence is clear to see. From what I can see, Anu Ajar has a master's degree in physics, the same as David Chandler, yet science has not settled the issue of the collapsing towers. I think we can understand why by listening to the following clip. Now, I'm not saying you should dismiss all conspiracy theories. Okay, there have been one or two examples that I can think of, things that were regarded as conspiracy theories that we know are correct. Things like the Tuskegee syphilis scandal, and if you read up on that, it's absolutely shocking. But whenever you have an extraordinary claim, you need extraordinary evidence. And so I always say, does it hold up to scientific scrutiny? What about critically thinking? Is it internally self-consistent? And finally, an old philosophical principle, going back eight centuries, if you have competing explanations for something that's happened, in general, the less complex one tends to be the right one. Anu Ajar is perhaps preempting the criticism that sometimes conspiracies do indeed occur by acknowledging he can think of one or two examples where this was the case. In the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, 
African-American men were left untreated for syphilis in order that medical authorities could study the progression of the disease. This certainly was a real incident, but I contest it's presented in a misleading manner. If I told you I could recall maybe one or two crimes the Mafia had committed, it doesn't mean that Costa Nostra is a legitimate business institution that only very occasionally gets drawn into criminal activity. It simply means that I don't know anything about the Mafia. Similarly, the US government is not a legitimate institution that only very occasionally kills some black men with syphilis. The US government is a criminal organisation that has over a hundred year history of overthrows and invasions of foreign countries in what amounts to a quest for global hegemonic dominance. This is an open conspiracy with no theory required. It has resulted in millions of deaths, the mass enslavement of whole populations, and requires a continuous propaganda effort aimed at the American public to keep it in motion. I've explored this in some length in episode 6 of my Contemplating Conspiracy series. I'll play the relevant clip of it here, as even if you've heard it before, I think it always bears re-listening to. In 1945, the United States was keen to re-establish its presence in the Philippines. Tens of thousands of villagers were driven from their ancestral land to make way for the lumber and sugar industries. The US Army trained 50,000 Filipino soldiers to suppress the Hook Rebellion, which, after fighting off the Japanese, sought land reform for the Filipino people. Tactics included the massacring of villagers using false flag terror, where government soldiers would pretend to be Hook rebels. In 1947, the United States essentially went to war with the Greek political left, supporting a fascistic government in Athens against insurgents. The CIA trained, financed and controlled the Greek secret service as they engaged in a program of detention, torture and the rigging of democratic elections. When the Greek Centre Union Party came to power in 1964, the CIA conspired to have Prime Minister George Papandreou removed and ultimately backed a military coup which saw Greece becoming the most brutal and repressive country in Western Europe. In 1948, the United States founded the Italian Christian Democrat Party, which incorporated Italy's old fascist bureaucracy. The CIA allied with the Mafia and right-wing extremists to ensure the Christian Democrats' victory over the Communist Party. This involved setting up secret terrorist units who would engage in false flag bombings in order to discredit the political left. In 1953, the CIA overthrew the democratic government of Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran. The agency paid thugs to pretend to be communists and attack mosques. They paid the media to report Mossadegh was secretly a Jew who would outlaw Islam. After rigged elections, the country was handed over to dictator Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, whose regime of widespread political imprisonment and torture paved the way for today's Islamic State. In 1954, the CIA enacted a coup in Guatemala to oust President Jacobo Arbenz. Arbenz wished to convert Guatemala's predominantly feudal economy into a modern capitalist state. He enacted land reform where the government would buy unused land from US banana company United Fruit and distribute it to peasant farmers. United Fruit ran Guatemala as a private fiefdom. It's an example of slavery not so much ending in the United States, 
but rather relocating south of the border. In an effort to link Arbenz with the Soviet Union, the CIA planted boxes of rifles marked with the communist hammer and sickle. Arbenz was ultimately replaced with General Carlos Castillo Armas, who immediately executed at least 3,000 of Arbenz supporters as he set up a fascist state. The country ultimately descended into a civil war in which up to 200,000 people were killed. In 1958, the CAA supported a failed coup attempt in Indonesia. CAA pilots bombed ships and marketplaces, killing many civilians. They actually attempted to produce a pornographic film with an actor who resembled the president, Sukarno, in order to discredit him. Although the effort failed as it wasn't convincing. In 1965, a successful coup ousted Sukarno, with the ensuing violence leading to the deaths of half a million. Throughout the 60s and onwards, the United States made various efforts to overthrow Fidel Castro's government in Cuba. The CIA trained and supplied Cuban exiles to retake the island in the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. The US enacted an economic embargo against the country, whilst the CIA carried out acts of internal sabotage against civilian targets, whilst working with the Mafia to assassinate Castro. In 1963, the CIA supported a coup and established a military junta in Ecuador. CIA agents bombed churches and right-wing organisations, and made it appear to be the work of the political left. They would march in left-wing parades, displaying signs and shouting slogans of a very provocative, anti-military nature, designed to antagonise the armed forces and hasten a coup. In 1964, the CIA backed a coup against Brazil's president, Joao Goulart, marking the beginning of the country's military dictatorship. Hundreds of people were disappeared, tens of thousands tortured, and approximately 8,000 indigenous people were murdered. In 1970, the CIA failed to prevent leftist Salvador Allende from becoming president of Chile. The United States ensured the new government was cut off from loans from the World Bank, as the CIA paid workers to go on strike. The hope was that a swiftly deteriorating economy will touch off a wave of violence leading to a military coup. The coup came on September 11, 1973, bringing Augusto Pinochet to power. Thousands of Chileans were murdered, tens of thousands horrifically tortured, with hundreds of thousands having to flee in exile. In 1971, the US government supported a coup in Bolivia, toppling President Juan Torres. Torres fell out of favour after nationalising tin mines owned by American interests, making overtures of friendship to Allende's Chile and Castro's Cuba, and increasing commercial ties with the Soviet Union. His replacement... General Hugo Banzer received military aid from the US as his dictatorship murdered hundreds and tortured thousands of Bolivians. In 1982, the CIA helped bring Hissan Habre to power in Chad to create conflict with Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. The two countries had recently ended their border dispute, and this wasn't to the liking of the Reagan regime. The CIA trained and equipped Chad's secret police, who murdered 40,000 political opponents whilst torturing hundreds of thousands. Throughout the 1980s, the CIA supported counter-revolutionary death squads in Nicaragua. The Contras waged war by attacking the Sandinista government's social programs, destroying health centres, schools and agricultural cooperatives. 
tens of thousands of civilians were tortured and murdered. When Congress refused to fund the Contras any longer, the Reagan administration facilitated their funding through arms deals with Iran and cocaine importations into the United States. This underpinned the crack epidemic of the 1980s. Also throughout the 80s, the US government supported El Salvadorian death squads as they massacred 75,000 civilians. The squads employed a scorched earth policy of destroying whole villages, a tactic taught to them by US military officers from experience gained in Vietnam. Also throughout the 1980s, after the Vietnamese army defeated the Khmer Rouge, liberating Cambodia from one of the most genocidal regimes of the 20th century, the US government sent aid to Pol Pot's forces, ensuring they could function as a terrorist group throughout the rest of the decade. This list is by no means exhaustive. I could have mentioned the assassination of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, or the ousting of Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, the war with Vietnam and the bombing of Laos and Cambodia, the invasion of Panama and war with Angola, but I think you get the point. Although I began this list at the start of the Cold War, these interventions preceded any communist threat. Regime changes prior to the Second World War required less, or different, propaganda. Such was the case with the annexation of Hawaii and the initial invasions of Cuba and the Philippines around the turn of the 20th century. They did not end with the demise of the Red Menace either. Rather, a doctrine of humanitarian intervention was employed throughout the 90s to justify murderous wars in Iraq and Yugoslavia. Then in 2001, the War on Terror commenced, which at last count has displaced 36 million people from their homes. We are also doubtlessly only seeing the tip of the iceberg. Countless other coups and assassinations must have had the backing of the CIA, where without confirmation we are left only to speculate. I would suggest that this all creates very good reasons indeed to be sceptical when this imperial machine claims to have sent men to the moon and back. This is perhaps the foundational reason why at least some people remain doubtful, and not the seductive conspiratorial method of thinking Anu Ajar proposes. Indeed, this was the foundation of Dave McGowan's case, in his book Wagging the Moon Doggy. McGowan placed the landings in the context of the Vietnam War. I'll play the relevant clip from the audio version. Returning then to the question of why such a ruse would be perpetrated, we must transport ourselves back to the year 1969. Richard Nixon has just been inaugurated as our brand new president, and his ascension to the throne is in part due to his promises to the American people that he will disengage from the increasingly unpopular war in Vietnam. But Tricky Dick has a bit of a problem on his hands in that he has absolutely no intention of ending that war. In fact, he would really like to escalate the conflict as much as possible, but to do so, he needs to set up a diversion, some means of stoking the patriotic fervor of the American people so that they will blindly rally behind him. In short, he needs to wag the dog, this has, of course, traditionally been done by embarking on some short-term, low-risk, military endeavor. The problem for Dick, however, is that a military mission is exactly what he is trying to divert attention away from. What, then, is a beleaguered president to do? Why, send Neil and Buzz to the moon, of course. Instead of wagging the dog, it's time to try something new, wagging the moon doggy. Nixon's actions from the very moment he takes office belie his campaign pledges to the American people. In May of 1969, with Nixon just a few months into his term, the press begins publicizing the illegal B-52 carpet bombing of Cambodia, engineered by irrepressible war criminal Henry Kissinger. 
By June, Nixon is scrambling to announce what is dubbed the, quote, Vietnamization of the war, which comes with a concomitant withdrawal of U.S. troops. In truth, however, only 25,000 of the 540,000 U.S. troops then deployed will be brought home. This ruse is therefore transparently thin, and it will buy the president little time. To make matters worse, on July 14th, Francis Reitmeyer is granted conscientious objector status on the basis of a petition his attorney has filed, which explicitly details the training and instruction he has just received in assassination and torture techniques in conjunction with his assignment in the CIA's Phoenix program. With these documents entering the public domain, the full horrors of the war are beginning to emerge. Just in time to save the day, however, Apollo 11 blasts off on July 16th on its allegedly historic mission and, with the entire nation enthralled, four days later the Eagle purportedly makes its landing on the pristine lunar surface. Vietnam is temporarily forgotten as America swells with patriotic pride for having beaten the evil empire to the moon. There is little time to worry about the brutality of war when Neil is taking that quote, one giant leap for mankind. The honeymoon is short-lived, however, for just four months later, in November of 1969, Seymour Hersh publishes a story about the massacre of 504 civilians in the village of Mai Lai, bringing home to America the full savagery of the war in Southeast Asia. It's time then for another moon launch, and Apollo 12 dutifully lifts off on November 14th, making another picture-perfect lunar landing before returning on November 24th. The country is once again entranced by the exploits of America's new breed of hero, and suddenly every kid in the country wants to grow up to be an astronaut. All is well again until March of 1970, at which time a U.S.-backed coup deposes Prince Sihanouk in Cambodia and Lan Nol is hand-picked by the CIA to replace him. Cambodia then immediately jumps in the fray by committing troops to the U.S. war effort. The war is further escalated the next month, when Nixon authorizes an invasion of Cambodia by U.S. and ARVN ground forces, another move engineered by Henry Kissinger. Nixon has been in office just over a year, and the war, far from winding down, has now expanded into Cambodia, both in the air and on the ground. Meanwhile, it's time for yet another moon launch. But this one is not going to be just any moon launch. This one, you see, is going to introduce the element of danger. With the first two having gone off without a hitch, the American people, known for having notoriously short attention spans, are already adopting a been-there-done-that attitude. The problem, in a nutshell, is that it just looks a little too damn easy. In order to regain the attention of the American people, it has to be impressed upon them that our brave astronauts are placing themselves in grave danger. And so it is that on April 11, 1970, Apollo 13 blasts off with Tom Hanks and a couple of somewhat lesser-known actors on board. But unlike the first two missions, this Apollo spacecraft fails to reach the moon and instead drifts about for the next six days with the crew in mortal danger of being forever lost in space. Now that gets our attention. So much so that when three Vietnam vets hold a multi-city press conference in New York, San Francisco, and Rome on April 14th, attempting to publicize the ongoing Phoenix program in which they have participated and have first-hand knowledge, nobody can really be bothered with paying much attention. It's hard to be too concerned with the fate of Vietnamese villagers, you see, when Tom and the boys are clearly in trouble. Awaiting news of the fate of the Apollo 13 crew, we all have our eyes glued to the TVs as though we're watching post-mortem coverage of Michael Jackson. When our heroes somehow make it back alive, defying seemingly impossible odds, we're all so damn proud of them that we decide to award Tom another Oscar, and all is well again for the remainder of the year. I really have to repeat here, by the way, that in the late 1960s and early 1970s, America really did rock. I mean, how about the Apollo safety record? Seven manned moon launches with seven perfect takeoffs. Tom and the boys obviously never did make it to the moon, but the other six crews sure as hell did. 
and all six set those lunar modules down like the consummate professionals that they were, and all six used that untested technology to successfully blast off from the moon and attain lunar orbit. And then all six successfully docked with the orbiting command modules, and all seven of those command modules, even Apollo 13s, returned intact with their crews, happy and healthy. That was just an awesome time to be an American, and especially to be an American astronaut. Well, except for three guys. Virgil Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, who were burned alive during a test procedure in the command module of what was to be Apollo 1. But they were troublemakers anyway, who probably wouldn't have wanted to go along with the moon landing fable. And then there was that Thomas Barron guy, who was a safety inspector for NASA and who delivered highly critical testimony and a 1,500-page report to Congress, only to then be killed a week later. That report seems to have been sucked into the same black hole that swallowed up all the other Apollo evidence. Anyway, returning now to our timeline, the dawn of 1971 brings the trial of Lieutenant William Calley on charges that he personally ordered and oversaw the mass murder of the inhabitants of the village of Mai Lai. And on January 31st, Apollo 14 is launched and once again makes a flawless lunar landing. On February 9th, the Apollo team returns just a few weeks before Calley is convicted of murder. He served an absurdly short sentence under house arrest and none of his superiors were ever held accountable. A few months after that, the New York Times begins publication of the infamous Pentagon Papers, revealing American policy in Vietnam to be a complex web of lies. Publication is quickly stopped by the Justice Department, but resumes once again as June turns to July. This is quickly followed on July 26 by the launch of Apollo 15. Four days later, yet another flawless lunar landing clearly demonstrates that America is the most badass nation on Earth. But moonwalking has become a bit of a bore for the American people, so a new element is introduced. And from now on, our beloved astronauts will roam the lunar surface in dune buggies. The lunar modules haven't gotten any bigger, but now they can transport vehicles to the moon. Cool. Back on Earth, the astronauts return on August 7th, and the rest of the year passes uneventfully. On March 30, 1972, North Vietnamese troops mount a massive offensive across the DMZ into Kang Tri province, revealing as lies the pompous statements by numerous Washington hacks that victory is close at hand. Nixon and company respond to the offensive with deep penetration bombing of North Vietnam and, for good measure, the illegal mining of North Vietnam's ports. They also respond by launching, on April 16th, another rocket and another dune buggy to the moon. On April 27th, the crew of Apollo 16 once again return to a hero's welcome. By the end of the year, a ceasefire is finally looming on the horizon. Beginning in October, Kissinger and David Bruce, a member of the infamous Mellon family, are secretly negotiating peace terms with Le Duc To of North Vietnam. In December, however, those talks break down, but not before Apollo 17 is launched on December 7th in a most spectacular way. It's the first night launch of a Saturn V rocket. With the latest Apollo mission still a few days away from returning, the talks cease and Dick and Henry unleash a final ruthless carpet bombing campaign against North Vietnam, snuffing out countless thousands of civilian lives. Meanwhile, America warmly greets its returning astronauts. Just five weeks later, the talks having resumed, a peace agreement is announced. Within a few days, a ceasefire is in effect, thereby officially ending America's involvement in Southeast Asia. Though the CIA will remain to continue directing the war by proxy, America's men and women in uniform come home, and the Apollo program, despite several additional missions having been planned and discussed, and despite the additional funding that should have been available with the war drawing to a close, will never be heard from again. In addition to restoring national pride and providing a diversion from the savage colonial war being waged in Southeast Asia, the Apollo program undoubtedly served another function as well, covert funding of that war effort.
Needless to say, faking moon landings is less expensive than actually making moon landings, and a whole lot of money was funneled NASA's way during the Vietnam years to accomplish the latter. It stands to reason that a considerable amount of that money could well have been diverted into covert operations being conducted in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. In addition, a portion of the Apollo funding likely financed the early stages of the militarization of space. It must be acknowledged that just because the United States government is the center of an evil empire that uses propaganda to cover its genocidal violence, doesn't mean every claim it makes is a lie. It certainly doesn't mean that everyone who works within it is working to this end. It also must be acknowledged that the propaganda value of the moon landings to the US war state remains the same regardless as to whether they were staged or real. It does explain, however, why anyone lacking this historical context would dismiss the moon hoax position out of hand, much as they would with 9-11 conspiracies. David Chandler is not coming from this position. He is well aware and a vocal critic of the crimes of empire. His concern, an entirely valid one, is that attaching demonstrably false conspiracy theories to anti-imperialist efforts unduly elevates the former whilst discrediting the latter. In principle, I agree with this entirely. I also think that a critique of the moon hoax position that acknowledges the context of empire is far more powerful than one that does not. Having examined what I consider to be the foundation of the moon hoax position, the sensible foundation anyway, I'll stop there for today. In the next episode, I'll go into the specific reasons that cause people to be sceptical of the landings and try to figure out which ones might bear the best fruit. That is to say, which issues might investigation best reveal whether men went to the moon or not. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support the show and join the forum, there's a subscription option in the info box. As everyone is fleeing PayPal like the sinking ship it hopefully is, I've opened a buy me a coffee page where you can make donations which I probably won't literally spend on coffee, but certainly will use to keep the production of this content going. Thank you very much. Tell me, are you locked in the pond? Andy, are you good?